This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Welcome to GapFest Reads. I'm David Plotz, one of the hosts of Slate's Political GapFest. Like Henry Kissinger or possibly a Kardashian, Alexandra Petri has written a new book that has her own name in the title. Alexandra Petri's U.S. History, Important American Documents I Made Up. Alexandra is, of course, the extremely funny columnist for The Washington Post. And if you've read her there, her new book will not be at all surprising, but it will still be a billion percent delightful. She has retold the history of America through a series of funny and entirely manufactured documents. Walt Whitman's Songs Not of Myself, other lists by Joe McCarthy, John and Abigail Adams Try Sexting, The Gettysburg Address as written by Aaron Sorkin, 50 States of Grey, Audience Feedback for Our American Cousin, one I really like, Big Women, Louisa May Alcott's unsuccessful first draft of Little Women, which begins... Christmas won't be Christmas without any presents, grumbled Joe, lying on the enormous rug. Joe was 60 feet tall, and people were like ants to her. Anyway, you get the idea. So, uh, Alexandra, welcome welcome to uh, GapFest Reads, and congratulations. Thanks for having me. So, I feel like Hamilton was American history recast into a modern musical form, hip-hop storytelling. Uh, Alexandra Petri's U.S. history is the same thing, except you've picked another quintessential modern form the satiric sketch comedy. So good for you. It's the Hamilton. It's the Hamilton of books. <laughs> yeah, I, I will take that. Can we put that on it somewhere? The funny thing is you were mentioning that it had like my name on the cover. And, and I'm like, I really did not think it was going to be like this forward. I thought it was just gonna be like AP and also like a little tiny thing with my name. But it turns out that if you don't want the college board to get upset, you have to make it very clear that it's actually me. As a, as a big nerd growing up and con- continuing to be an enormous nerd, I was always really fascinated with those books of documents that they would give you. And they'd be like, here, read these 30 sermons from the 19th century. And then we will ask you very detailed questions about them. And now you'll understand American history. And I always wanted to just make a book that could plausibly be confused for one of those books of documents and hopefully cause you some difficulty when taking your exam. So you have, I don't know, like a hundred odd documents in here. Which one came to you first? What was the one that came to you in a fever dream? Like, oh, it's going to be. Oh, man, well, initially I had these little snippets that are like 50 states of gray where it's sort of like, what if, you know, the search for the Northwest Passage were an excerpt from an erotic novel. And those, I, I thought initially that the whole book would be that, but I, I was told by those who knew better that like, 
that would not be sustainable for a whole book and that people had forgotten about Fifty Shades of Grey, which congratulations to people if that's the case. I can you can, we, can you just read one of those? I think the Patrick Henry one. I read the first one, which I think might be the first one in the book. I read it. I just cracked up. Oh yeah, here we are. Give it to me, Patrick Henry gasped. What? Liberty or death? One of the two. The Virginia House of Delegates shifted uncomfortably. There has to be another way of phrasing that, said George Washington, who was there. <laughs> I love that one. The give, the give it to me is so good. Uh, the uh, so okay. So the Fifty States of Grey. What well, what came after Fifty States of Grey? So after Fifty States of Grey, I became obsessed with Cotton Mather. I was doing this Amtrak writing residency where you go all the way across America on a train, and I was like working on the book proposal at at that time, and I was like I. As I, as I was writing across like Montana, I'm like becoming obsessed with Cotton Mather. I mean, like, I've got to learn everything about this fascinating churchman from old timey Massachusetts. And so I was sitting there like reading his account of like the providences of the invisible world. I wrote like so many Cotton Mather things, uh, but none of them were usable. I was like clearly in a, some sort of fever dream. And I get off the train and I've just got like 8,000 words about Cotton Mather that no one will ever be able to read or see. And eventually he did make it into the book in a somewhat truncated way where he's doing sort of a ghost hunting show, but the stakes are real lives. But yeah, Cotton Mather came to me first, I'm sad to say, and he's not gone away. You do really have an amazing ear because you parody so many forms. You parody all different kinds of poems uh, Hemingway, Fifty Shades of Grey, Emily Dickinson, um, titles of American songs. I loved your titles, the American Songbook, the classic American Songbook. Uh, you parody PowerPoints, audience reviews, the Puritan Sermon. How did you get the ear for all of that? Like, how did you, if you're going to rewrite YMCA in the style of Walt Whitman, which you're going to read to us in a second, how do you, how do you? manage that. Well, I'm glad you asked. You sort of lock yourself in a room with the texts until it's sort of like you you try it's like trying to get a song stuck in your head, but sort of verbally. So I was sitting there. I'm like, I just got to steep myself in Walt Whitman. So I was sitting there reading all of Leaves of Grass. I found this guy who did like Walt Whitman spoken word poetry. And I was like, we'll just have this on loop coming through the speakers. It was that thing like, you know, in Brave New World, where everyone goes to sleep and there's a voice being like, I'm so glad to be a beta. I'm awfully glad to be a beta. I'm so glad I wasn't born an alpha that plays them to sleep every night. Sort of like that. But with, you know, the text that I was trying to evoke. Although there's some authors who like, you actually have to fight them off to avoid sounding like them. But Walt Whitman has like a very distinctive rhythm that was like really hard for me to get. It was really like, I'm I have to sit here and pour poetry over myself until eventually that's what's coming out of my pores. So in fact, you did Songs Not of Myself and you did uh, My Milkshake, you did Barbie Girl, All Star and YMCA. Can you read us uh, or perform for us YMCA in any fashion you so choose? I think I will just read it, but I'm excited that you believed I could do more. So here we go. Here's YMCA, also by Walt Whitman. What are you doing, young man? Are you so morose, so given up to these ostensible realities, politics, points, your ambition, or whatever it may be? Are you dismayed? There is no need to be dismayed, though you are in a new town. I, I am not new. I see you and look to embrace you. 
Therefore, young man, from the ground of the cobbled cities, from the ground kissed by the dust of travelers, the ground trod by the hirsute bull, the buffalo, pick up yourself, young man. There is no need to be unhappy. I will go with you to a place I know. I will show it to you and delight you. What are you doing, young man? Do you fear there is no place you can go? I say, young man, there is a place of delight to the eye, the ear, to all who delight in the pressed, linked power of bodies. Go there, young man, and delight in it. I will name that place. <laughs> I will tell it to your ear. Its name is YMCA. To stay there is fun. <laughs> I strongly, I strongly recommend you read that in, on your on your book tour, your year-long book tour. It's so good. Oh, well, thank you. Do you ha- do you have any grander ambition for uh, Alexander Petri's U.S. history when you write a book called U.S. History uh, beyond making people giggle? Are you actually trying to get people to learn U.S. history this way or not really? I think it's one of those things where I just sort of want to meet you where you are when it comes to U.S. history. So if you're like, please have a little paragraph at the beginning of the thing telling me what the thing is so that I may laugh at it. Uh, I will write you a little paragraph. And if you're like, I'm deep into the Melville lore. And if you get anything about Pierre or the ambiguities wrong, I will come at you with a knife. I'm like, you will probably come at me with a knife, but I appreciate so much that you're there. But no, I do think it's it's goofy and silly. And I, I thought it was going to be more informative than it was. But hopefully if you're like, oh, I enjoyed that joke about the Buckley-Vidal debates, you can then go to your YouTube and watch them in full and have that experience. I had a few things, which I, mean, I know a lot about U.S. history, but I did learn about, like, the corrupt bargain. I had never heard of the corrupt bargain. I mean, I knew when I saw it, I was like, oh, that must be the corrupt bargain. But your branding session for the corrupt bargain was really good because it taught me something, too. Oh, good. Yeah. So hopefully you do learn a little bit. Yeah. Because that's one of those things where there's so many pieces of history that they insist on giving you where they're like, and of course, George Washington did this. And of course, the Federalist Papers did that. And then there are also all these little corners that increasingly, like, if you're into history, you'll go and you'll be like, I've got to learn more about, you know, is it really true that Woodrow Wilson was not the president for a while and his wife just was the president? This is hopefully somewhere in between the like, I've gone off to my corner and delved and I've just been handed this because I know that eventually there's going to be a test and somebody's going to ask me six questions about, you know, what was John Adams doing in Paris and was it 1789 or was it a different year? And so hopefully in between that, there's mirth. The parody of American history is an honorable tradition. Or the parody of history is an honorable tradition. I grew up with 1066 and all all that. I don't know if you know that poem. Oh, love that. It, yeah. yeah. And then there's... In our recent history, The Onion, of course, Our Dumb Century, and I Am America, the Colbert book, or John Stewart's America, the book. Are any of those inspiring to you, or were you? do you feel you were off on your own somewhere? I mean, they were all inspiring to me, certainly. I feel like the thing that's different about this is it's sort of like a documents book. All the 19th century American literature, I'm like, much as I hate Nathaniel Hawthorne, I love to hate him. And so it's just like me being a big literature buff sort of grabbing people and shaking them. So there's as much sort of literature and documents in here as there is a straightforward, like we're going to start, pick a year, and then we're going to continue until probably 1950 if we are fast enough, or the 60s if we really are like getting there. There's always that point in history where like 
you run out of room to teach it before the exam. And so it's like, I have no idea what happened in the 80s. Was, were we even a country at that point? Just because like, you're really racing through and there's like one paragraph in the textbook that's like, possibly, if you're lucky, we got to the Clinton era, but maybe we didn't. So I, I tried to stay faithful to the rushing, gasping, panting textbook. This episode of The GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. Alexander, who is the funniest person character in american history that's a really good question personally i think there are so many possible answers to this question you know okay i'm gonna i'm gonna say i think benjamin harrison is very funny i think our 23rd president benjamin harrison everything about him is hilarious he at one point was running for president and he gave great speeches everyone loved the speeches of you know benjamin harrison 23rd president hoosier man of the people Except afterwards, his friend's like, you got to talk to the people. And he says, no, be a human being, Ben, his friend said. And he said, I can't do that. I must be myself. And I, I think that that's very funny. What did he even mean? He, well, he, he, didn't, he, he was very, very awkward with people. Everyone said he was like a cold fish and his handshake was like, I think, shaking like a fish wrapped in brown paper. And <laughs> he had a bunch of, he had a goat at the White House named Old Whiskers. Uh, he had a lot of animals. He had he was, I mean, he came back twice. You have to, you have to respect it. 
non-consecutive. No one has done it. And and Benjamin Harrison is the is the the only grandson ever to be president. The grandson of a president to be president. So yes, yeah. they the 19th century. They were always setting records. I also think Tesla is very funny because he fell in love with a bird. This is true. This is one thing I learned while I was writing the book. He like had a bird that came to him, and he was just like pigeon. Your soul and mine are one, and you are like a, a woman to me. In addition to doing all the inventing he was doing, I just I feel like it's nice that he made time to find love with a bird. The Tesla intervention, Tesla's friends have an intervention about his love for the bird is incredibly funny. Also, not least because you have the the form of the PowerPoint down so well. But I don't think Tesla would have had any friends. That's probably why he was hanging out with the bird. So there would be no friends to do the intervention. Yeah, no, that's, that's the part of it that doesn't ring true, I guess, is the, the like, uh, he has enough friends and they also have gotten a PowerPoint together. But I, I like to think that if he had had friends, his life would have been different, perhaps in multiple ways. And this would be one of those ways. Not to demand that history teaches us lessons about the presence. But is there anything you learned in writing fake documents about American history that applies to the Washington that we both live in now? I think people have always been people. And so that was the thing that I had the most fun with over the course of it was thinking, well, you know, the Minutemen claimed that they were always on time, just one minute away. But I've never actually been one minute away at any point that I've said that I was one minute away. (laughs) And just all of the same obfuscations and the ways that, that we see ourselves that other people don't see us and the attempts we make to present a good face to the world when in fact we are, you know, giving a speech about a totally incorrect concept. All of that stuff remains. All the weird little nitty gritty details of how awkward it is to be a person in the world are consistent. And that was one of the things I had fun playing with over the course of all of these documents was being like, there were people in in there in all of this. I mean, I, mean, I, I think that's so well put and you feel that I mean, even in something as trivial as, as the Adams's sexting, as, as John and Abigail Adams is sexting by letters sent across the Atlantic, and Abigail Abigail's, you know, ribaldry, her bodiness, her attempts to really heat it up, and John just not getting it. It's, you do feel like that's probably, there's an equivalent to that with, with a lot of couples today. It's also like, what is sexy, really? Is it just like two people getting together describing how many layers of petticoats they're wearing? It can be. Anything can be sexy if you find the right person. And equally, if you haven't found the right person, almost nothing you attempt will be sexy. And equally, if you don't have the right person or you're just not vibing, nothing can be sexy. And this piece explores that duality. Um, And if you're Ben Franklin, everything is sexy, probably. Yes. How did you test whether a piece worked? Because I assume you you wrote like a hundred, but probably you you wrote a hundred more. Oh yeah, yeah. These are the ones that survived the culling. But so, what? How did you do that? Do you read them out loud to a spouse? Do you, uh, you know, put them on the internet and see what happens? I mostly I would just send a I, I would sort of send sheaves of these to my editor, and he would be like, "This one I laughed on the subway, and this one I'm confused by." And I'm like, "Great, well, we'll keep the first one, and then I will write you another sheave." And so I kept doing this for months un- until I actually like slightly may have missed my deadline a tiny bit because I was just, like, I kept going. And I also, it was during the pandemic and I sort of didn't connect the date that it was in the year that it was in my mind with the date and the year that my book had been due. And that I was like, oh, it's, it's, it is in fact that time of that year. And today is that day, but they were very understanding about it. And then I also had a uh, baby during that time. And so I was like, I, I do know that my deadline is before the baby comes, but I was expecting that she would be sort of, you know, late to arrive because she's my child. And as 
mentioned previously, I'm never on time to anything. And so I was like, well, I probably got like at least a week after her due date before, uh, in which I could really polish this and get it all good to go before I go on maternity leave. And it turns out that that is not how things work. So, so if you notice that elements of the book seem like they were written by, by somebody who was trying to time, like, is it time to go to the hospital yet? There is one section that, that that's true of, uh, at least for the first draft of how it happened. <laughs> and I will leave readers to guess which one it was. What was the, the one you wrote that you were most pained to leave out? Ooh, I mean, I was going to say I, I did like three different drafts of the Jonathan Edwards spider one. I was obsessed with that. And none of the drafts worked. Like the first draft was you may already be a sinner type vibes. And the second draft was what if at the debate with Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, the third person had been not John Edwards, but Minister Jonathan Edwards, and a concept that was only funny to me and not even very funny to me once I actually had to sit down and write it. And the third one was, what if we hear from the spider? And that one did get in. So I'm just glad that something is in there involving, you know, Minister Jonathan Edwards. Alexander, because uh, that Whitman was such a big hit, why don't you you leave us with one more sample of something from from Alexander Petri's U.S. history. Sure thing. How about The Lady in the Sexual Harassment Seminar by Raymond Chandler? She said it was mandatory. She said it was a sexual harassment seminar. She said I needed to attend it to retain her as a client. Or anyone else for that matter, Marlowe, she said. She looked up at me through her eyelashes, like a Venus flytrap that knew how to apply mascara. She was the kind of broad that a man would walk barefoot over Lego-infested carpet for. I would have filled out redundant forms in triplicate just to get a glimpse of her adjusting the seams on her stockings. This is what I'm talking about, she said. All this narration. I can't help it, I said. It's just how I see the world. She said her name was Velma, and the sexual harassment seminar was at the airport Weston. She took a long, last drag on her cigarette, then put it out in the pot of the fern on my desk. The fern had a mean, hard-bitten look like it knew nobody cared if it lived or died. I hope I didn't kill your fern, she said, but it didn't sound like she hoped very much. You won't be what kills that fern, lady, I said, and neither will I. That fern's been dying a long time. Maybe it'll make up its mind to die today. Maybe it'll live another hundred years. She blinked at me twice, like an umlaut rendered in Morse code. I don't believe that's how plants work, Mr. Marlowe. Could be I'm wrong about plants, I said plants or enigmas. They're less enigmatic if you water them, she said. She retrieved her cigarette butt from the fern and held it pinched between two slim, elegant fingers. I will see you at the Weston. <laughs> As I was looking for that in the book, I came across <laughs> The Waste Cat and Other Suppressed T.S.L.A. Poems. Wait, but what's the FDR one? Oh, yeah. Uh, the, no, the only the thing we have to fear is fear itself and the thing that ate Herbert Hoover. <laughs> So good. All right. What writers bring you the kind of uh, laughing joy that you bring to me and so many other people? Who else should we be reading? I always a big fan of Allie Brosh, Lindy West, Danny Lavery, uh, and R. Eric Thomas is hilarious. So those are folks working today. And Robert Benchley, who is a ghost now. But if he puts anything out new, I will be there for it. I'm so dumb that I was like, Robert Benchley, didn't he write Jaws? But that was that's that's it's Peter Benchley, I guess. I think I think it's Peter Benchley wrote Jaws. 
I think that might have been his son, but I could be wrong. So I don't, is that right? I, I could be wrong. The Benchleys, like Harrisons, like the Harrisons. Yeah. Or the Bushes. That'd be a fun rep to have for yourself, even if you weren't actually Robert Benchley's son. All right. Alexander Petri's U.S. History, Important American Documents I Made Up, is available in all good bookstores. And Alexander is also maybe coming to a town near you and see her if you can. Alexandra, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this month's edition of GapFest Reads. Our producer is Shana Roth. Ben Richmond is Senior Director of Operations of Slate's podcast. Alicia Montgomery is Vice President of Audio at Slate. We'll be back with you next month with another edition of GapFest Reads. Until then, John, Emily, and I will be back in your feed on Thursday with a new episode of the Slate Political GapFest. What's the answer, Alexandra? Are they related? My Googling revealed that they are not. Not related. There we go. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>